Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Nabil Amra onto the show, a gentleman I met recently who is recommended to me as just a delightful human being I should take the time to meet while I was passing through Minneapolis by a Judd uh, Dunham um, episode. I don't remember, but that will be in the show notes. Um, and when I did get to meet him, I was just, it was so pleasant because we had a lot in common about travel and, and thought processes and we just really connected, I felt. So it was exciting to bring him on the show and, and discuss the, uh, the adventure that is on the horizon for him and the transition that he's going, going to be going through in the next year, um, in his life, which is essentially giving up a job as a foreign exchange currency trader to embark on a year round unassisted sale around the world. So with that said, Nabil, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Chapin. It's a pleasure, my man. And like I, I just introduced the audience, like this is a feat of something I've never heard of before. I mean, of course you have the Valentine's Globe or whatever it's called. Oh yeah, Valentine's Globe. Yeah, which I know derived from this, this original um, competition. And... You're going to and do it. You're going to get out there and and do it. So w- maybe you can tell our audience the inspiration to do such a a huge undertaking of a sale. Well, you know that's a that's a long story, brother. But uh, that's why I we're here. Time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, just like Judd Dunham, I grew up in uh, in the same town. Uh, you know, he went to high school with us in uh, in Chaska, Minnesota. You know. Uh, like he would say about Prior Lake, I, I will call it a, a hidden gem. And, uh, you know, born and raised. So, uh, you know, both parents, Palestinian, uh, came over and uh, my dad came over in the 50s, went to medical school, put himself through school and went to the Navy, lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. And, uh, you know, and out came four kids uh, that are, you know, running around trying to do well. Uh, but, you know, growing up in that environment as a, you know, Palestinian, uh, you know, born of, uh, you know, immigrants, you, you certainly knew, uh, but, uh, it, you know, it is what it is. I was always unapologetically Palestinian, uh, of, you know, storage and stock. Can, uh, I, no can I ask stop. you real quick, did you take a lot of grief growing up as a Palestinian growing up in Minnesota? You, you know, it, I, you know, there were times, sure, sure. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, pretty small white bread town. I mean, I, I guess you could say I was uh, every minority wrapped up into one for, uh, <laughs> you know, for a small town like that, a, a corn town. And uh, but were, you, were your parents practicing Muslims? Uh, yes. Yes. So you grew up practicing as well? I did. I did. You know, we try to keep to the to the rules, but, you know, there's so many weaknesses uh, one can have. <laughs> <laughs> right. I so, just... but yeah, it, uh, you know, I mean, I definitely had color from both sides, and uh, you know, I, I would say you know had the same struggles that any first generation, uh, you know, immigrant would. Uh, but uh, I think I, I, 
had had it better than most you know i mean it was a, a great place uh, to grow up and uh you know i didn't didn't feel too out of place very welcoming and uh you know it was a, it was a good experience you know, and and af- after i i got to know my roots a little bit and go and visit and and live there too in palestine i'd say that there I, I see why my parents settled there you know they're very similar people farmers farmers salt of the earth kind of deal uh you know nice small town village feel so it it was uh it was good i i i didn't have any uh, after age 12 you know i didn't think of myself as any different than anybody else yeah uh, when uh you did mention in our conversation we had uh, back in minneapolis that your parents did take you back and they took you back at kind of a a critical time for palestine can you maybe tell the audience a little bit about that how old you were and what was going on over right there? I've- 12 years old and uh, youngest of four kids, uh, but uh, my parents said, you know, you should uh, go there for a year. We have uh, you know, family there and uh, go to school, learn the language, you know, a, a year. It sounded great. And, uh, you know, we, we went, some of the kids begrudgingly, and, uh, you know, you miss your friends and all that good stuff, and uh, you kind of had your thing going on. But uh, it was a great experience. Uh, within two months of getting there, the uh, uprising started. They closed the schools and borders and, uh, it, you know, uh, stone throwing and uh, Israelis were, were, were shooting everybody. And, uh, you know, you killed like 3,000, you know, majority kids, uh, you know, for peaceful protests. Actually, uh, if this works out, I'll uh, show my favorite poster in the in the house. Would be the, uh, the the kid throwing the uh, the rocks at the tank, you know. I mean, these are real life scenes. Cool. And, uh, yeah, we're not recording. We're not recording video right now, so. Oh no it, problem. It's just audio. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a it's a classic of a of a 12 year old kid throwing a rock in a big tank. Uh, you know, just uh, just in the foreground that he's throwing it at. It was a it was a real uh, eye opener. I mean, they cut the water and the electricity for long periods of time, and uh, you know shooting at night and uh, it was it was a wild thing to uh, to experience as a 12 year old kid coming from chaska minnesota that uh you know the only gunshots you heard were when someone took you fe- pheasant hunting or something like that a pretty uh, pretty radical change and uh you know i i got i got the feeling that uh, and you know just by looking around and seeing uh the oppression and uh that uh it was it was just wrong it was false and uh, we ended up having to stay for two and a half years. And it wasn't, uh, you know, pleasant conditions, but I wouldn't have had it any other way looking back at it. I mean, what an eye-opener. What a life-changing experience to see uh, people with, you know, all, nothing to give, but just all the hospitality in the world. You know, everybody was in the same boat. Proper third-class citizen, you know, occupied people. And, uh, you know, they don't get a fair shake in the media or in, sports you know they can't leave their border to compete in sports i found out recently uh you know that's why there's no sailors in uh in the olympics you know for instance uh they wouldn't let them leave you know but they sent theirs and you know i after after seeing what i saw as a kid and coming back to the states you know i lived in chaska after that went same family house that we left uh you know definitely colored a guy uh you know to live for the moment like that at that age, you know, to to see death and uh, and and to see somebody that's doing it, you know, if there was, this wasn't like uh, acts of God, you know, no no lightning came down or smiting the children in the streets, 
I, you know, these guys were in fatigues and they were settlers and they were Israeli soldiers. And I mean, I went there without a political slant, but I saw that and saw the shake they get in our uh, in our media and, and just how, uh, you know, it must just be so you know, Zionist control that it's uh, just got a, a slant on it that they'll never overcome. Hmm. And they have nothing to cheer for and haven't in years. And, uh, you know, this was like something that I I saw and it, it instantly clicked. So can I ask why you had to stay? Were you not allowed to leave? Yes, and our visas were expired. And uh, then it became, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a game of, uh, gosh, when you leave, are you going to be barred from coming back? And, you know, there, there were, uh, you know, all sorts of issues. And, and after, uh, you know, the first year, uh, we were committed, you know. There was, we wanted it, actually, at that point. You saw someone trying to forcibly take your home, your land, your trees, you know, they just and, and put a tent up, and uh, they're unarmed people, you know, and they, these guys got Uzis, and uh, and that is how land is, expro- is uh, appropriated, you know, for these illegal settlements, and, and you hear about it, you know, illegal settlements, you know, these are these are governmental or orchestrated things, they're like laid out neighborhoods, prefab, whipped together, and there it is. Hmm. It, it's an amazing thing, but, uh, you know, I, that was the hmm. motivation behind this. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I've been behind a desk for four, you know, 20 years. I, I made a little bit of scratch. Uh, but, you know, the, the life living in a place like this, I, I did things differently. You know, I did things what you, your mom told you to do. You know, I went to school. I went and worked uh, right after school and worked the corporate job and, uh, you know, and, and eventually got good at what I do as well. But it's a shallow existence. There's no question about it. Uh, to go into the office every day. And, uh, I mean, I love the people I work with and, you know, the job has been great and all that good stuff. There's got to be more, right? You know, there's got to be some travel. It always seems to be the time when I'm happiest. Uh, you strike out on your own. The exploratory, you know, adventurous side of it all that, uh, it's living for the moment and, and it's, it's living deliberately. It's, uh, you know, there's selfish reasons behind the, the, the race too. It, uh, the highs and lows when you're on a boat like that are uh, so pronounced and they're real. Where the highs and lows living in you know your day to day community existence, uh, you know, in your hometown, what have you, it can feel rather unfulfilling. Right. Um, I have actually a few questions I want to circle back to. You know, you did you touched upon this is why you're doing this, and for the audience, um, just to clarify, you're you're. You're taking on this race that hasn't been raced in but 50 or 60 years. It'll be um, the 50th anniversary, yeah. 50th anniversary, which is a, a race around the world um, in a vessel by yourself that has specific specifications on size and type and without any instruments. Like you're using a sextant, a compass, and you're doing it like they used to do back in the 1800s. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's a no technology race. That is correct. I mean, they, they're giving uh, you a GPS where if you break the glass and you use it, you know, you're disqualified. And, uh, you know, so there's a safety, you know, device on board if uh, if it's needed. But, uh, yeah, it's nonstop around the world and pretty much old family cruisers, you know, 30, uh, 32 to 36 foot plastic boats that you can find for twenty, thirty thousand dollars and uh you know cruise the world in them safely uh is the thought they're old traditional you know long keel boats so that was actually part of the draw is that uh 
some of these speci specifications pretty much make all the boats slow. And, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm a pond sailor at the end of the day and probably have no business in doing this. But, uh, uh, you know, you don't try, you don't get, right? So, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think some of those rules will be a nice leveler uh, on, on many fronts, actually. Right. Should uh, you know the difference between the the, the master sailor and uh, you know the the, uh, the the novice pond sailor might be one knot of speed, which you know over the course of the whole world, of course, that's a long ways, but uh, you know it's not it's not horrible. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and uh, you know, I'm not trying to say I'm relegating myself to the back of the pack either. You wouldn't do anything, right? You wouldn't put your mind to anything if you didn't think there was a chance. There's a chance that you could pull a little something, something. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question because you alluded to, you know, your your love for your culture, Palestinian culture, and the fact that they have been an oppressed people, unable to compete in world games and other types of activities around the world. That you're you're kind of doing this for them. Um, are you also secretly doing it for yourself to for the challenge, or is is it just? Oh, I, you know, absolutely, and. Uh, you know, I'll, I'd be a, a bold-faced liar if I didn't say that there's some. What what was the uh, the old saying that uh, many things can be gained from solitude uh, except for character? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm 42 years old, so the character is set. You know, I, I give me some of those other things. You know, I had the what what really struck the fire was that sale with uh, Judd Dunham, who uh, was one of your guests. Uh, you know, he needed a hand, and uh, all sorts of people came out from all sorts of places. And he handpicked them carefully, man. It was it was such a symbiotic relationship aboard. And uh, the sun rose and the sun set uh, over and over and over again. You didn't know what day it was, and it was just a uh, a religious experience. It was it was a you know an epiphany at sea. Uh, well, and, let's uh, talk about that sail real quick, just so the audience uh, remembers. So you 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 helped Judd with his um, basically his big. Uh, the luxury, the luxury, luxury yacht, cat, yeah, luxury right? cat around uh, through the Panamanian Canal from the Caribbean to the Pacific side of Costa Rica. Is that correct? Right. Absolutely. And, and I made some shipmates on there that, uh, you know, just think the world of. Okay. And so that kind of got your the wheels turning about this race? Is that what I'm understanding? It, it got my wheels turning about uh, actually the cruising lifestyle. I thought about uh, right after that, basically, I started hunting for a boat. I, okay. I wanted to, uh, you know, go cruise the uh, the watery parts of the world and uh, poke your head into cool ports and, and come chase our same, uh, you know, chase our wake and go visit Judd. Uh, you know, I want to see Galapagos Island, the South Pacific. You haven't seen any of this stuff. I want to see this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not getting any younger, uh, you know, no question. But then, then the race popped up and I had been immersing myself in all these books about the first race. Uh, you know, one thing about sailors is they're like prolific writers and, uh, and uh, good books and just proper adventure. And so, you know, that's how you escape the, uh, the, the daily grind. You know, you, you read books about these guys and their experiences. And, and I told myself when I finished the last one, I'm, it's a good thing I wasn't born then because I, I, I fucking be there. You know, I, I'd be there. They'd have to contend with me. <laughs> and then, uh, you, you know, like a year and a half ago, I was paging through a sailing magazine for free at the at the bookshop across the street from work. Uh, you know, go there for my lunch and uh, read sailing magazines for free. Uh, so there's uh, my uh, ignoble, you know, inglorious uh, you know, secret activity. But uh, I uh, I saw the advert for the 50th anniversary of the race, 
doing it to all of the old rules, uh, you know, that wasn't necessarily rules and it's just what they had, you know, a technology, a sextant, celestial navigation, you know, a propeller in the water to measure distance, so, you know, pretty caveman shit, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I saw that and I, uh, I wired uh, the dude my entrance fee within 20 minutes of reading that. I ran back to the office repeating the website in my head so that I'd remember when I got there. <laughs> and uh, that the rest was history. Really? That's cr- seriously, you made that decision that quick. Like it was like basically like that every, se- every cell in your I, I body said this is right. You know, <laughs> I'm impulsive. I never said I wasn't. But I mean, but this is really this is really cool because I mean, you know, mix this and rejects is about lifestyle design, um, and you've touched upon tasting a different lifestyle for a few years back when you're 12 years old, back in Palestine, and coming back, and then I don't want to say conforming to the American dream, but you got the nine to five, a job that you liked for a long time, you were successful Absolutely. at, you know, f- foreign currency trading, and now 42 years old you're over it you're transitioning out and you're transitioning out with a bang brother like this is not just like oh i'm gonna go like you kind of just mentioned for a few sales like you are going to go on a nine month unassisted sale around the world like what i mean that's kind of gotta be a little bit nerve-wracking too right oh absolutely the the i have to say the anxiety of uh of not having the day job uh eats at me you know like the security blanket that has become over the years uh, there's no question about that, but you, you know, you also asked me the question of, uh, you know, are you doing this for some reasons for you? And, and you kind of just, you kind of just filled it in without saying it there. Uh, when, when you said, <laughs> you know, if you wanted to pick on my personal reasons, uh, you got a good gig and, uh, you're good at it and you could do it in perpetuity. And, uh, you know, they'd say nice things about you at your grave. Uh, but if you're going to, uh, if you're just going to quit and go cruising, you maybe it almost makes you kind of uh, slackerish, you know, for mm-hmm. my Midwestern uh, work ethic. Uh, I do have some guilt in that respect. So maybe you do have to go out with a bang, uh, <laughs> a nice transition. However, it is an abrupt transition and one that I, I you know, I'd, I'd admit to struggling with it, you know, getting everything tidy. Do yeah. you sell everything? Do you sell partly? Do you rent out your house? Do you sell that? I mean, you know, you got a lot of shit. You've been living in there for 12 years. <laughs> so what's your conclusion? Because I think a lot of the audience who consider these types of adventures are just making that cut from that blanket you just described. You know, what have you come to conclusion wise on what's your kind of tentative game plan? I know it's still a year away, but what are you thinking? I'm, you know, I'm thinking I, I, uh, I will liquidate uh, non-essential items and keep a pretty Spartan place, uh, which I've been uh, working towards. Uh, the house, you know, I had some, a uh, couple of rental properties, which, uh, slowly but surely I've liquidated over the last couple of years. I, now I live in a duplex up and down and, uh, I love the place. Been here for 12 years, you know, bought it when I was in my twenties and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of memories and all that good stuff. But of course the money would be nice too. Uh, I think my interim plan is, uh, like, you know, February when I uh, try to run out to England and have a look at the boat. I think I will rent this place out or I'll leave it empty for a, a couple of months. But before I shove off, I'll rent it out for a year and uh, come back and then decide if I, you know, you're probably going to change as a person after nine months at sea. <laughs> if you don't commit uh, suicide. <laughs> you're Right. But I'm a, I'm a happy guy and I, I uh, you know, I'm social, but I, 
I don't mind that solitude either. I have to say that I, you know, I don't mean this to make me sound selfish with the, but uh, the alone time was, uh, was nice on many fronts sometimes, uh -huh. you know, you, you need, uh, you can think deep about things. You, uh, you know, you, you can, uh, uh, you know, really get to know yourself. You know, have you ever stopped and asked yourself questions? I have, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and answered them, uh, <laughs> you know, without saying I had a split personality, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was illuminating. So, um, I was actually referencing the, the original race where I think there was six or seven entries and of the seven, say seven entries, you know, one, one gentleman did commit suicide. The other six, the other five failed. One guy sank. Nine, nine, nine started at one finish. The Englishman, yep. Sir Robin Fox Johnson. Frenchman pretty much lost his mind. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was kind of uh, known to be a vagabond at sea and kind of a, a gypsy on the water. Uh, but uh, I don't think he liked being called that. But uh, I mean, he was my favorite of the bunch, Bernard Montessier. And he, he was also a prolific writer. And uh, his books are just, uh, you know, they sweep you away. Uh, also, maybe he might make it sound easier than it is. That was my brother's take on him because I'm like, read this guy. This is great. Let's go do this. He goes, I think he makes it sound a little easy. <laughs> Maybe true. Yeah. I think, me, you know, me and my good friend John, uh, episode 27, have done some adventures together. Nothing like this, but long walks, long hitchhikes. And we always talk about the, the 20 to 1 rule, which is, you know, <clears throat> like one out of 20 times like is good where the rest of it sucks. You know, and the, the only really fun part is like getting done with it and finally just talking about the adventure that you just had. Absolutely. But, you know, that one that one out of the 20 is so powerful and poignant that that like, you know, and I know I never had a child uh, birth uh, out of my uh, body. But, you know, they say girls tend to forget about how brutal it was, uh, you know, and therefore they have another one. It's probably a lot like that. The uh, the, the one you know time out of that 20. Uh, it can be so religious and profound uh, that, you know, you, you go through all that shit to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you, there are times during it, too, where I've been there and I said, if I could push a button right now and be transported away from here, I would do it. <laughs> I would push that button, well, you know, willingly and unapologetically. But, uh, you know, there was no button there that, that did that. Uh, but those other times now, I mean, I still want to go back. So I, I don't know what to tell you about that. I've, I've only read a few seafaring books and, and they always seem to conclude what you just stated, which is like every sailor who goes to sea for long periods of time comes back and sets the foot on land saying, I will never ever go back to sea. And then within a few months, they're back out there just because there's something that is enchanting and alluring and the adventure of it all is just overwhelming. <clears throat> Absolutely, you know the the old clipper ships. They they uh, you know the headmasters used to uh, uh, hate going into port, uh, and, and there was often talk that there there were no bad men, just bad ports, you know, and and how how they all ran back to the boat, you know, by the end of their shore leave, pretty much itching to get away. So, uh, you know, which mimics the way they probably ran to shore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, I want to touch upon, you know, the qualifying because you mentioned you just spontaneously sent in your fee, but it's not just a fee that you have to pay to enter this race. You also have to do a sale, a solo sale of what I think you said, 2000 miles to actually qualify. Right. So Absolutely. can you talk us through what, when you did that, how you did that, what that was like? 
Well, you know, it, uh, the, the route was uh, Puerto Rico to Maine, uh, in Portland, Maine. And I had a buddy there that was, uh, you know, going to welcome me with open arms. And, uh, and I also, I thought, you know, in, uh, in early May, uh, that would be uh, a nice mini version of this uh, whole event. Of course, we're not going around the three great capes uh, and Cape Horn and, uh, you know, the Southern Ocean, which is the most violent place in the world. But, uh, I, you know, it started like this. I'm a pond sailor with, uh, you know, weekend and uh, week-long trips on salt water. Uh, and that's recent experience. But well read on it, but experience, right? You know, I mean, seat time. Seat time is what, whether I'm dirt biking or mountain biking or, you know, driving car fast, it, seat time is what saves you. And I, I didn't have that much. I knew, knew I needed it, too. So I shoved off, and uh, the first three days were probably I was paralysis by analysis and, uh, you know, uh, anxiety of the unknown really uh, seized me, and I was I was paralyzed and uh, not going anywhere very fast but the way the trade winds worked i couldn't get back to where i came from uh and uh you know and the whole thing kind of started uh in a in a lurch uh you know, my brother was uh, kind enough to meet me down there with another friend uh, basil and did some grocery shopping for me and stuff but the boat wasn't prepared man you know i i, I was in a hurry and i didn't have uh, quite the funds to do the nice refit that it needed i had no heat and uh, a few other things that uh, would have been nice. Uh, I had to cut the bow line to get away from the dock because I was alone and I was running around and it was kind of blowing. You know, it was one of those things so final cutting that line when you <laughs> when you're leaving the marina for the last time. Uh, but you know, after those three days, I realized you weren't going to get anywhere sitting around uh, whimpering about it. And I uh, got to business, and I had two weeks of uh, of my own epiphany at sea. Man, I it was. Uh, beautiful days, uh, windy. When the first night where I felt like I was tested, you know, I had a following wind, maybe uh, 25, 30 knots, but it was blowing hard. And it was at night, you know, it almost makes the guy scared of the dark again, mm -hmm. uh, running up to the mast and, uh, you know, pulling down some more sail and, uh, and looking and seeing just the white water from all the bioluminescence rush past you, knowing that, you know, if your foot, if any part of you touches that and sucks you in, you know, that was a scary thought. It made gave me a lot of caution. Uh, and a lot of people that know me think I'm a daredevil or whatever. I, uh, those people uh, are mistaken. You know, I mean, my wrists are calculated. And, uh, you know, that one gave me pause. Uh, but, you know, the sun also rises if you can live it out. And after, you know, uh, feeling like I was tested and everything was uh, good in the hood now that it was going to be easy, uh, <laughs> I got you know, tangled up with a big nor'easter coming out of the Chesapeake Bay. And, uh, you know, it was three days of, of, of violence, you know, 40 and 50 knots and, uh, and, a, and a huge sea got up. Uh, and I got nervous and I was tired and hadn't rested. And I thought, I'm going to use this, this drogue, you know, it's, it's like a long line with a bunch of little parachutes and you'd throw it from the back of the boat. And I used it, and uh, and it was awesome, and it calmed down the whole craziness, and I uh, slept, and I was able to rig it up where it still had me going in the right direction, just uh, with control. Uh, but uh, you know, sure enough, it, it uh, and day three, it it ruined my self steering gear, and uh, I felt the deep depression when I had that realization uh, that I was 800 miles, you know, from anything, and uh, that. That big storm in the night, uh, the cockpit got pooped a bunch of times and water came in the cabin. 
And I kept some of my food down low like a big monkey uh, and uh, not in the best containers. And a couple of weeks worth were uh, sodden with salt water. You know, so now like the front passed and it's freezing out afterwards. I didn't expect it to be that cold that far south. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm restricted to a can of tuna fish in the morning and a can of sardines at night and a little bit of olive oil. And uh, I found a jar of honey. You know, that, these are my last days uh, when I was uh, just kind of making my way 100 miles away from port, looking through my inventories and, you know, bad things. It, it, but And it would have been a failure. You could call it a failure uh, if if I stopped there. But I learned so much, though. I mean, that's that part kind of eats me alive when I, I had thoughts of quitting. You know, uh, when I pulled into port, I'm like, well, maybe this isn't for me. But then with every day that went by afterwards, he started to to long for it. It's like you get land sickness, hmm. daily grind. And, uh, I, you know, it scared me. I was scared. Uh, I was in awe at nature's beauty, though. The, the wild, huge seas are uh, uh, they're, they're a thing that you, you actually don't even feel fear for a minute. More, more awe than fear, you know. Wow, you say, and you stare at it. When uh, if you were in fear, I think you'd probably run below and board yourself in. Hmm. Did you develop any superstitions while, or do you have any? Did you have any before you left port? Funny you say that. I I, I remember having a conversation with myself then, saying like, I I know why sailors become religious men, or or why they were so superstitious. Absolutely, uh, because you find yourself making those sailors' promises in the middle of the night, like, you know, no, have mercy, just get me through, just get me through this, and you know. I change, man. Change everything. Gonna be different. You'll see. But uh, then the sun comes up again, and uh, you know you you feel a little bit more confident, like a, a new little uh, arrow in your quiver and your mm -hmm. experience quiver. I remember uh, I had a similar experience when I was running boats off the coast of Nicaragua, just motorboats, and in southern Nicaragua, the wind blows offshore. You know, three hundred and sixty days a year, and for a two-week stretch, when I was captaining. That every day for those two weeks, every single day I got on that boat, it turned on shore. And I could see <laughs> how sailors started to get that superstitious feeling like maybe I'm jinxed. You know, maybe it's something that I'm doing because it was fine until I, I climbed up in on the bow of that boat and like started pulling anchor and all of a sudden I could feel the wind start to change. Right. And maybe like, there's a Jonah aboard, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, and you can start, really start to see when you're really not in control of mother nature and mother nature is seemingly always against you can develop a definite superstition i think so i didn't know about your time on the boat so you must have uh you know had days when you felt so insignificant so fragile so alone out there i mean uh and <clears throat> while that all sounds terrible when you put it all together it's uh it's a humbling experience that i think is good for the soul oh it is it's purification it's uh brings you into the present moment like you were describing where you you don't have a choice but to just be there in that moment because there's nothing else for you. You can't right. actively working on your your survival and yep. uh, taking an active role in it. Yeah. And I love that in these these types of adventures and and living abroad especially in in third world countries I think brings that out in all of us where we have to just be in the moment for that moments of survival and uh I wanted to kind of get into the the purchase of your boat because you mentioned earlier that you had purchased a boat in England. I think I heard you say, right? Yeah, you know, my current boat uh, was just a little too new for uh, the rules. They wanted them designed uh, 
before 1970, and this one was like 1972. So, uh, you know, sadly, it's not going to work out for the race. And we have so much love for each other, too, that you develop. Uh, you know, I see, I see her on the dock, and uh, it warms my heart. But uh, Blue Moon, I can't do the race. So I did buy a boat. It's a catch, which I've never sailed a catch. But, uh, you know, they've always appealed to me uh, on the visual anyway. And what they can do for a guy for sale change and uh, options. But it's in England and it's getting refit right now. And, uh, you know, that's be the first place I go and come February and I go have a look and see where we're at and what else needs to be done. Okay. And that's just a, a quick over the pond to see what's going on and then back to kind of close up everything here before you, I think it's July when the race starts. Is that correct? Right. I, it's in uh, uh, June 30th. And I, I hope to get like three or four months with the boat and sailing, uh, and then uh, try to tidy up everything with uh, maybe a, a month or three weeks back home. Okay. And then can you please describe to me in the audience the route that you'll be sailing for this race and how it goes? It starts in, uh, you know, by La Rochelle, France, and uh, out of the Bay of Biscay, and it goes down. It's the old uh, clipper route from, uh, you know, the, the tea trades and the, the lamb wool trades and all of that. Uh, it goes down through the North Atlantic, uh, then crosses the equator, and uh, you make through the Southeast Trades through the South Atlantic, and then uh, into the Southern Ocean and uh, around the, the Great Cape. So first would be uh, uh, Cape Good Hope, and then uh, Cape Lewin in Tasmania, basically, uh, and uh, underneath New Zealand, and lastly around uh, Cape Horn, uh, South America. That's interesting because from all the research I had done years ago, thinking about trying to jump on a boat around the world, everybody was going the opposite direction with the trades. So is there, because it's in the Southern Hemisphere, is it at that time of year uh, different? Well, well, in the Southern Ocean uh, and why they used to use it is because, firstly, the earth is so small down there, you know, mm -hmm. your way around it. Okay. Uh, longitude gets really close together uh, by the poles. Uh, so you can you can make uh, you know westing. Basically, you have this huge west wind that that blows in the Southern Ocean, and it's fairly uh, brutal and strong, and uh, but it's predominantly a westerly breeze. And you sail east about, so it uh, it's, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be right a, a following a following sea, you know, a following breeze. Okay. But uh, it, it's uh, it's known to be uh, you know a really nasty piece, the worst piece of water. Because there's no land to uh, to block that that uh, you know that westerly, mm -hmm. so the wind and the waves uh, whip and it gets huge. And then you have that Cape Horn where Antarctica and South America get within like 600 miles of each other, and there's a you know a shelf there, and that was the uh, you know the graveyards of uh, thousands of sailors over the years. Oh man, you're making my tummy turn, dude. That's gnarly. <laughs> and that's the, you know, I mean, more people have uh, climbed uh, Everest than gone around Cape Horn. It's, uh, uh, it, it's the creme de la creme, you know, I mean, uh, of, uh, of difficult, uh, sailing bits. And, uh, you know, I'm not here to tell you that, uh, you know, I'll take it, take it on the chin. You know, it's, uh, there's some nervous trepidation, uh, about spending, four months, four or five months in the Southern Ocean and, and two or three of those months, uh, it's not the best season. You know, they're the first months. When you first get down there, you're going to be uh, probably like around September. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's, uh, that's spring down there, early spring. That's pretty brutal. 
because what uh, fall is and winter are horrible, and uh, then spring and summer. Well, they're like the equinoctial gale season to begin with, but uh, uh, it, it'll be cold in the beginning, and, and that just makes everything worse. Yeah, no kidding. And so, total time you hope to spend out there is what nine months. You know, I mean that—that's what I'm—I'm I'm hoping for. Yeah, I'm hoping for nine months or less, of course. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think if it goes much longer than that. I probably had some problems. <laughs> I'd say so. Um, now you've you've started a GoFundMe to help this uh, campaign of yours. You want to talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, I mean the uh, I mean the, the whole effort is to to raise attention for you know just if nothing else the Palestinian sailors that uh, have been denied uh, their Olympic ambitions due to lack of visas and boats. Uh, they destroyed their boats on the beach, which you'll see on the GoFundMe page. Uh, it it kind of just wrote up my story and uh, what I'm hoping to do and uh, some links to the race page, which, uh, uh, you know, since I won't have a GPS handy, uh, that you'll be able to follow it on there. And, uh, you know, hope to uh, hope to circle back to uh, Costa Rica at the end of it all and, uh, and take a month and relax. But uh, we'll see. Uh, Probably never goes according to plan. That sounds really simple, but right. uh, uh, that you know what, what what else can you do? You you can uh, read and study, and you can go out there and practice and and work on your weakness, which is uh, you know ultimately saltwater experience. You know, I mean, I've had some gales and I've uh, had some nice stays, but uh, this will be a different rig and a different boat. And while my sailing was never in question on that first trip, when it, it was harder than I expected, I think. You could draw, you know, I, I can pick the reasons, you know, or no heat, uh, wasn't careful with the food. And, uh, you know, I broke myself steering gear without uh, spare parts that I should have had. Yeah, yeah. And then so if somebody did want to, you know, help you uh, with a donation on your GoFundMe, it's just Nabil Amra is how they would find you if they went to the GoFundMe page. Yes, and then you'd, or, or you could type in Team Palestine and uh, you will, uh, it should be the first one up. Okay, great. And uh, I mean, uh, every every uh, every dollar helps, and there's a foundation uh, and uh, a very uh, generous uh, individual out of LA uh, would let me use their uh, you know a nonprofit uh, so that uh, people can get the tax write off. I will include uh, you know that uh, the name and an address you know if uh, somebody wanted to send a check, uh, and he actually said that he would match it. So that might be my. My best option now, seeing as uh, my, my low-hanging fruit for money has been used up at this point, you know, until uh, I you know, make a move or sell the house. Uh, so, yeah, every every bit helps. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes for the audience if they want to donate directly to you through your GoFundMe. Um, you know, wow, Nabil, thank you for sharing the story. I think it's super cool what you're doing. Uh, fucking ballsy, my friend. Like, this sounds like a, a true test of will and um i wish you all the best you know as this endeavor starts getting closer starts getting closer um you know i'd love to have you back on in the next year or so after you finish the race and and kind of get your your thoughts and feelings on the experience and um is there anything that you know thinking about your life up until now and, and what you're about to embark on that you could say to the audience to maybe Maybe, you know, trigger something in their mind if someone's considering, you know, making a serious life change as you are. Because I'm under the impression you're not going back after the race to your work like you are. You know, it, it, it sure is even hard to imagine going back uh, afterwards, especially when I'm 
I'm leaving kind of in a burnt out state to begin with, you know, really uh, itching for a change and, and uh, you know, just a, a, a fresh perspective. So uh, you're, you're probably right on that. But, you know, who knows what the future holds? But I mean, I can tell you that while there's probably, uh, you know, Palestinian sailors out there that are better qualified for this than me, uh, they can't leave right now. And so I guess I'm the best we got. And, uh, you know, I. I'll certainly do my damnedest to uh, to raise that bar. And as a Palestinian American, I mean, I feel like uh, I I came from two of the uh, the finest stocks of people. You know, I, I have uh, Midwestern all over me and uh, the can-do attitude with the work ethic. And then you mix it with the uh, tenacity and resilience of uh, of a people that can just take abuse for seventy years and nobody gives a fuck. I I think you know the blending and melding of those two. Uh, could uh, could come together and surprise everybody. You know, I'm going to do what I can anyway. Right on. Right on, brother. Well said. Much love to you. Thank you for joining me, man. Uh, best wishes. Thank you, Chapin. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview, inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.